Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. What is it to be English? What is England? For me, a Welsh man. England is the country that invaded my one and later consolidated its power so effectively that most people in Wales don't even speak our own language. Yeah, so yeah, some of that's on me, but I've got to level three a Duolingo. What more do you want? In his new book, New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England, Alex Niven brilliantly argues that the map of the British Isles should be put in the shredder, that we should stop pandering to romanticised patriotism, reject nationalism, and instead move toward radical regionalism. Alex is a writer, poet, former musician, and current lecturer in English at Newcastle Uni. And he's a top lad. We had a right good chat about the ideas in his book, about Mark Fisher, and Alton Towers, which you can hear now. Hello, Alex. How's it going? Hello, Jack. It's going very well. Wicked, wicked. I'll get straight to the question that's on every listener's mind. How does it feel to be the Pete Best of everything, everything? Um, w- would we say the, the Pete Best of everything? <laughs> <laughs> would, would we put it quite like that? Um, I mean, I could talk about that if you want. It's kind of a long and complicated story. I always say there were uh, political, personal and aesthetic reasons oh my for God. my departure from, from the band. But uh, it's a, yeah, it's a long and uh, drawn Give me a headline. Headline is I just didn't enjoy it, I guess. It's a good uh, reason to stop doing anything. So yeah, maybe we'll leave it at that. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I'll open with a lighthearted question and accidentally we can, uh, we, opened no, a creaky you know. door into Alex's soul. Uh, I'll delete my frivolous questions such as, is the beautiful vocal harmony in Suffragette, Suffragette? Right. Is it, who's going to sit on the fence when I'm gone, on your fence when I'm gone? Or who's going to sit on your face when I'm gone? There's major debate. This, this is like a flashback to... <laughs> Ten years ago, when I, yeah, living in Manchester, we used to get asked that all the time. We always used to say we couldn't possibly reveal the secret to that. Uh, it was it's it's up to the listeners' nice interpretation, like true all true art. Indeed, right. yeah, indeed, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, let's get into the book. Loved it, an absolute banger. Thank you. New Model Island. Why that title? I was once told in a publishing workshop. Yeah. I think possibly the only one I've ever ever been to that you should try and give your book a, an upbeat title. Yeah. So originally the book was called The End of England, which oh. was a bit kind of dark and depressing. Yeah. And, you know, if you're kind of browsing through titles in a bookshop, you might not go with something that uh, has such a kind of dismal apocalyptic spin on it. So mm. I thought New Model Island, upbeat. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's a, an allusion there to the English Civil War. Uh-huh albeit a kind of distant one and uh, I'm not quite so sure I'd like to be associated with Cromwell and Hardcore some of the things he did yeah he did in Ireland particularly 
Yeah. Uh, but New Model Island uh, does what it says on the tin. It's an attempt to think about ways of reimagining the islands, mm-hmm. so-called Great Britain, mm-hmm. but also the islands in the archip- archipelago more generally. So Ireland. Mm-hmm. And all of the other ones, <laughs> of, 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 which, of which there are 166, I think. Oh I, I learned this while writing the book. So, yeah. So I think this notion of us being an island singular is complicated. And wrong from and what wrong, you just indeed, said. Yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah. I love it. I also love the idea that book titles should be positive, which is the opposite of the wisdom of putting anything out online. Yeah, you know, like YouTube videos are all called Why X Sucks with sucks in capital. It could have Why England Sucks capital letters. <laughs> uh, second edition, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's a millennial thing. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I'll, I'll, think, I'll think on it yeah. for, the yeah, next, yeah, yeah. for the next book. So you've obviously written a book about the limits of the idea of England, sure. quote, England, unquote. So are you not a patriot, sir? Do you not love this country? No. <laughs> Can answer without any hesitation. Uh, I mean, it's it's not really a case of not loving the country. It's yeah. it's just a case of not really knowing what what the country is, and uh, on a very basic level, not thinking that, that England yeah. exists in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah. So I think it's very difficult to be patriotic when you don't know what the country is, and you have a kind of slightly sketchy sense of where the country begins, where it ends. Mm-hmm. You know, are we English? Are we British? Are we, you know, citizens of, of the UK, including Ireland or mm-hmm. bits of Ireland? So I think that makes being patriotic pretty much impossible as far as I'm concerned. My uh, perhaps knee-jerk response to such strange McCarthy accusations of, uh, <laughs> is, is uh, you know, what what is there to be proud about? about? I teach as well as doing stand-up. And uh, there's a weird thing in all teachers' contracts that Gove put in that we have to sign up to teach British values, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. what the fuck? It lists some things like democracy, and it's like, have we even been? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Real dodgy stuff. But yeah, I like the response of uh, to are you a patriot going, well, what even is England? Yeah. Because no, who would be able to answer that? <laughs> After reading your book, well, uh, I'm yeah. thinking no one. Well, what, <laughs> oh, what do you think? God knows, I'm Welsh, so when someone says England, I just think, oh, you know, it's very easy to just uh, kind of have a knee-jerk reaction of mm-hmm. the the thing I dislike. People who own holiday homes mm-hmm. drive mm-hmm. up house prices in Wales or... Go Tory. More likely to vote Brexit in living in Wales yes, with the people yeah, who yeah. Yeah, live yeah. in Wales as well, um, which imagine. is... Uh, yeah, I was, I was thinking about this, is patriotism fundamentally right-wing? Because there are some on the left that think, we sure. should build a left patriotism that's about all the English things we should be proud of, like the NHS and, I don't know, the levellers, the diggers, yes, the chartists, yeah, 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 that yeah. kind of... Now, there is like a bit of a drive yeah, yeah. to say, build a left patriotism. Do you mm. think that could be a thing or is that just, let's well, abandon that? What do you as reckon? you say, it, it is a thing. Um, so there's the kind of Billy Bragg mm. model of rediscovery of English radical... Roots. To clarify, um, Alex has got a quote from Billy Bragg, who I yes. associate with this English patriotism yes. thing, on the front of the book. Yeah, and I was, uh, which I it's, like, it's a little it? bit awkward. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, he's 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 a nice guy, and he was very very kind to provide the quotation. So yeah. maybe we'll just just leave it at that. <laughs> Um, Sorry, I to continue. I know, yeah, it's a very kind of noble endeavour. I sympathise with the attempt to, uh, you know, rediscover this kind of radical Englishness. Mm. But a couple of things. I mean, the first thing is that I don't think, in terms of the English example specifically, it's ever going to be possible to disentangle English patriotism, nationalism mm. from the right wing version, which is much, much more powerful much better established. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're going to be able to kind of bring together reference points, you you listed things like, you know, kind of historical examples like mm-hmm. the levelers, 
poetry of Milton Blake, Shelley, mm. you know, the Tall Puddle Martyrs, things like that. I, I think these are kind of inspiring examples, but mm. I don't really think they're ever going to be able to challenge and replace, you know, the kind of Churchill, mm. British bulldog or, or English bulldog. I don't, I, you know, again, <laughs> we, you know, um, there's kind of confusion about what's English and what's, what's British. Yeah, let's get into um, that. Is there a difference? How do you understand that? One of the big problems for England is that England sacrificed its sense of self and identity in order to become the British Empire. So firstly, colonising the surrounding countries, mm-hmm. although colonising is a slightly contentious term, it you know, happened in different ways. Uh, it's, well, it's, it certainly became hegemonic yes. over Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and then obviously the British Empire spread throughout the world. And obviously that was a, an English mm-hmm. thing predominantly. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, England had to pretend that it was kind of open to absorbing all of these other countries mm-hmm. under this umbrella of imperialism. Mm-hmm. And so England itself really lost its sense of definition. It lost its literal political and geographical outlines. Mm-hmm. And it lost its sense of identity. It kind of relinquished that to this notion of Britishness. But into the present day, but certainly Mm. at the time of the Second World War, for example, you have people identifying as Englishmen, talking Mm. about Englishmen as a kind of shorthand for people from Britain as a whole. So you could be Scottish and and still an Englishman Mm. in in this weird terminology. The lines are very blurred and in such a way that I think it's, it's difficult to imagine disentangling England from this British imperial past mm. and kind of backtracking to three, four hundred years before mm. England ceded its identity to this notion of Britain. So I think, you know, that's one big, if not the biggest problem underlying this notion of England. England, it's imposing itself on other places, mm. diluted its own sense of self and it had to alter yeah. it. I think, uh, you know, you can have power or you can have soul. You can't have both. And England went for power and lost its soul. Now that, <laughs> that is a line. Um, Thank you. I've <laughs> been thinking about that for, for some time, planning it, waiting for a moment to... Deploy. Dr- yeah, deploy it. To- it's got me. It's got the listener. The mind's blown. Um, <laughs> casualties all around. Do you think there's a uniquely a problem with English patriotism? Pretty much just said that it's, there can't really be a left patriotism. And I, I get that because it's... To me, it seems similar strategy to defences of immigration that focus mm-hmm. on the economic value of migrants, sure. which yeah. dehumanises them. And only you're arguing on the basis of like, yes, we should determine a human's worth based on their, <laughs> their economic value. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing of once you're in that bad frame, even arguing against it kind mm-hmm. of feeds the monster. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely get that angle. But do you think there could be like a liberatory patriotism, you know, like anti-colonial struggles or even Welsh, Scottish and Irish Yeah, well, I think, patriotism. yeah, so Welsh, Scottish mm. and Irish patriotism are about a million times better than English patriotism and, and nationalism. Mm. They emerged in opposition to this kind of imperial culture, as, as you say. They're often progressive, if not, if not quite left-wing. Mm. Nevertheless, they are still emerging out of notions of nationalism that mm. I don't, that I, you know, I think are ultimately quite spurious. Mm. You know, I live in the northeast of England. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Northumberland. You know, I sort of identified much more closely with Scotland than the southeast of England. Yeah. The, you know, the idea that you kind of cross the border at Berwick or Carlisle and suddenly you're part of a different entity mm. seems a little bit absurd to me. Not that I'm a unionist, very much, you know, in favour of Scottish independence and great greater Scottish autonomy. Mm. Nevertheless, at some point, Scottish nationalism will come up against 
problems arising out of the fact that it is a nationalism mm. and it's reductive and it, the idea that your kind of identity is shaped wholly or predominantly by your nation mm-hmm. just seems a little bit silly to me for all, all kinds of reasons. Because what is a, a nation? Yeah, well, exactly. Imagined community is the, the yeah. Benedict Anderson thing that exactly, everyone yeah. knows. Yeah. It developed out of a print because it standardised the languages and areas. I think that's his argument. I haven't read yeah. it for a very yes, long time. Yes, yes, yeah. Print uh, <laughs> and also, also the decline of religion. So nationalism is a kind of substitute for religion when you, mm. you get the end of Christendom. You know, people yeah. in, in the Middle Ages, most often this is massively sweeping generalisation, but <laughs> there's a sense that, you know, in the Middle Ages, let's say a thousand years ago, you, you felt yourself to be a part of Christendom. Yeah. You know, under the umbrella of the church. Yeah. That was, you know, civilization, and that was, you were ultimately answerable to well, to God, but, mm-hmm. you know, through the Pope, through, you know, priests and bishops, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously that has big problems with it. But, you know, when that collapses, that's one of the things Benedict Anderson yeah. argues. Uh, that's one of the things that opens the way for nationalism. You have mm. this kind of spiritual or pseudo-spiritual investment in mm. this idea of the nation state, mm. um, which I think is a little <laughs> bit tenuous, if not totally ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by um, the development of the nation state and and borders. So only a couple of hundred years ago, you could just Mm. pretty much walk across Europe and you wouldn't hit a border. You would hit borders, you'd go over borders on maps, but you wouldn't hit the border. Sure. Because the border was like a wall around a city or uh, where the... The, you know, the contemporary equivalent of the cops could get you yeah, to enforce yeah, yeah. the border. And then there's all interesting stuff of nationalisms coming after the development of nation states. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. uh, Eric Hobsbawm, really good historian mm. and also weirdly like hardcore into the Communist Party, like mm. maybe for yeah. a little too long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> a little summary of who Hobsbawm is there, guys. Um, check him out. Um, he talks about how French nationalism comes after the development of the French nation state. So he he he, yeah. uh, he argues that about 12% of French people actually spoke the same kind of French mm-hmm. in, in literature and the spoken word in 1789. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the nation is, you know, if we take, take Benedict Anderson's argument that mm. like it's this shared language and that development that builds this idea of the nation, it's like... Mm bizarre because the the state building happens before the shared concept of we know we're all Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. french as it as it exists now i'm fascinated by it i find it Mm. absolutely bizarre well i'm just coming back to your thing of responding to you know are you a patriot with well what even is england what is what is any country yeah i mean obviously you have you know you have to have i wouldn't want to go in for this incredibly abstract sort of idealistic left internationalism which says that you know you can't have any administrative units obviously you have to have some way of governing different parts Mm. of of the world but it seems to me that you could do that in a fluid way Mm -hmm. you know i think scotland wales ireland provide good models because they're Mm. about the right size you know Mm -hmm. they have populations of you know three five seven Mm. million Mm -hmm. which is about the right size i mean obviously in an english context that Mm -hmm. would be that would imply regionalism which is is one of the things that's advocated in the book so that you know the northwest for example has a population that's bigger than seven point something million yeah significantly bigger than scotland's over twice the size of wales yeah uh, i think greater manchester itself is about the same population as wales yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah i think the, the region seems to me a good hmm. size yeah <laughs> you know if you, if you have to divide the world up which you probably do for all, all sorts of administrative reasons, then thinking about regions, mm. that seems to be a better unit than nations. Absolutely, because an administrative region doesn't require 
the idea of a nation to yeah. uphold it. And crucially, it doesn't involve ethnicity, which yeah. is, you know, the big, really the big bad thing about nationalism is its reliance on ethnicity and various kind of myths about ancestry and, you know, race. Oh, and big time. Et cetera, et cetera. So you, uh, one of the things you say in the book, which is Englishness is almost wholly devoid of ethnological meaning. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, that's a sort of summary of this DNA study. I'm not a scientist, so um, I think it's fair to say that I was bluffing slightly in, well, in analysing that. Well, you the things you say to numerous yeah. actual scientists and studies. Yes. So. so, yeah, so essentially there was a, a University of Oxford study three or four years ago mm. which looked at DNA clusters mm-hmm. across the United Kingdom and produced this really interesting map which suggests that there's a relatively homogenous ancestry in the south and east of England. To an extent, there's a basis there for a kind of English ethno-nationalism. But if you do want to kind of go down that path, this sort of homogenous English Mm. uh, ethnicity, if you want to call it that, stops at a line that you can draw from about Lyme Regis in the southwest (laughs) up, up to Middlesbrough. And there are completely different DNA clusters north and west of the line. So... Cornwall has a completely separate one. Devon has a completely separate one. There's a separate one on the Anglo-Welsh border. Mm. Completely separate ones in in Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Mm. A separate one in kind of West Yorkshire going into Manchester. Mm. Separate one in Cumbria, separate one in the Northeast. Interestingly, in Cumbria and the Northeast, they're very closely related to Scotland and Northern Ireland. Right. So, you know, so there's this this idea that, you know, if if you live in... Carlisle or Newcastle, mm. you know, in terms of ethnicity, there's a much closer connection with Glasgow and Belfast than there is with London. So this seems to make a nonsense of English nationalism, certainly. You know, if you're going to base an imagined community on ethnicity, <laughs> you know, you have to read the science yeah. and, and realise that it's, again, quite spurious. I get really uncomfortable. The recent obsession with people finding out their heritage, mm, yeah. uh, I think it's a little bit eugenics-y. Yeah. Uh, would you agree? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, so yeah, I sort of wanted to do this, um, but I just waited till my sister did it. Yeah. Because <laughs> obviously that was like, you know, getting it for free. Although it was actually quite accurate in our case. Ah. So it, it had, you know, these connections with Northern Ireland, and yeah. Scotland, and then the, the Northwest of England, actually. Mm-hmm. So it was actually quite quite accurate. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? I mean... Mm. It's, you know, I, do, I don't want to bring Rachel Riley in, in, into things, but, you know, one of the many slightly sinister things I think she said was talking about her baby having Jewish blood. Yeah. There are obvious, mm. <laughs> uh, obvious alarm bells ring when you talk, yeah, when you talk about blood. Yeah. And, you know, Jewish blood in particular, very ambiguous, you know, is, is it kind of racist and ethnicity? Kind of Nuremberg-shaped kind of, alarm bells. Yeah, well, well, yeah. well, let's, <laughs> let's be careful. I said it, not you. Yeah, you said it. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I totally agree. This yeah, this notion of blood yeah. is very it's very dodgy, mm. and it again points or leads ultimately to a kind of right patriotism, right nationalism. Yeah. I'd look actually at the Northumbrian example in the in, in the book of finding this very, 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 very small Northumbrian blood and soil <laughs> kind of movement, which was probably just one guy. Um, but yeah, the no, this notion of of ethnicity and, and blood is quite obviously not something that we want to have anything to do with yeah uh, on, I, on the left i would say absolutely but your point by kind of digging into that stuff is that mm. even on their own parameters exactly it's bullshit well right. you know the, 
perhaps there's as I say perhaps there's a kind of English heartland yeah. ethnically and but also bear in mind this is the data was people's grandparents yeah. so it was before the migrations of the mm-hmm. you know later 20th century but perhaps there is a kind of English heartland but if mm-hmm. you want that you know you've got to give the Cornish independence yeah, too exactly you do yeah if you're going to do it on ethnicity yeah you have to let basically a third of the country the north the west separate love it Okay, it's a very specific question here. Could you tell us about 7th century warlord Oswald <laughs> Iding, known as, at the time as Whiteblade, um, <laughs> apparently the basis of Aragorn in Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and obviously how this relates to your book. Yes. So, I, I, so obviously there's, there's kind of some memoir sections in the book and I start mm. off by talking about kind of end of 2016, start of 2017, things that were happening in my life at that time. One of which was that my son, who we called Oswald, was born. Oswald was a Northumbrian saint. Mm-hmm. I've got kind of ancestry in Derry in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. in Scotland, and in Northern England. Mm. And obviously I grew up in the Northeast, proposed to my wife on Lindisfarne, which was a monastery that Oswald helped to found after being in exile in Iona in Scotland, which was founded by St. Columba, Mm -hmm. Colmkeel from Derry. Mm -hmm. It's not politically relevant or interesting at all, but there's, yeah, there's kind of family connection there. Obviously Oswald sort of enters the book as a figure from this almost mythical Mm. period about which there are very few historical records, Mm. the kind of origin point of England, which is the Dark Ages. Mm. One interesting thing about this kind of Anglo-Saxon or English period is obviously Mm. you have regional organisation at the same time as there is a sense, this is the origin point of this kind of shared sense of the Anglo folk. Mm -hmm. My old English pronunciation (laughs) is is not what it used to be. Well, who Uh, knows how it was pronounced, they're all dead. indeed, indeed. But for all that you have this sense of a shared folk, folk, the Anglo-Saxon England Mm -hmm. is... Well, for a start, it goes into Scotland, Mm. in the case of Northumbria, probably. It's oriented around regional kingdoms. Mm. So Oswald's a key figure in this period. Yeah. When I was reading it, I was thinking about the same thing in Wales, because we were talking about Welsh nationalism before and how it tends to be a more progressive force than English nationalism. But itself, like Wales is all this hodgepodge of regions until England really consolidated it into one thing. It was split into all these different principalities where with all different rulers. Gwynedd's like the the biggest one, but it's it's the same everywhere. You know, we have these mythologies of Welsh nationalism, Scottish nationalism, Mm -hmm. English nationalism, Mm -hmm. but even they break down into regions. And I think this was good. It was a good place to start the book. Thank you. Yeah. How did the late, great Mark Fisher inspire your thinking? So Mark was a colleague of mine at Zero Books, which basically everyone that worked from Zero Books sort of resigned. Yeah, true Zero Books, the one well, true and, Zero and, Books. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and formed Repeater, which we very much see as the kind of moral inheritor of Zero's legacy. He encouraged me to write my first book, Folk Opposition. The starting point for that was a blog post about Newcastle United and Raoul Moat, and Mark being the kind of creative inspirational person he was said why don't you turn this into (laughs) into a book just he thought more deeply and with more perceptiveness about where we are and who we are and how our lives are lived under neoliberalism than anyone else I can think of it was an inspiration to me Mm. practical inspiration in terms of encouraging me to write and you know being a a, a kind of colleague at zero and repeater but also his kind of vision i think Mm. of this society in which we're kind of psychologically spiritually impoverished by this sort of crushing sense of capitalism being the only Mm. way to go that was a constant reference point for me and it still is even after mark dies Mm. very sadly obviously in Mm. in the start of 2017 and he 
functions in a similar way for, for lots of other people. It's, it's almost kind of secret handshake. You kind of mm-hmm. meet people and they have a similar kind of sense of reverence for Mark Fisher. I don't, you know, I don't think in a kind of weird way, but just in that similar sense of using him as an inspiration, as you say, and as a kind of benchmark for what is right mm-hmm. and what is, what is wrong about, about the way we live today. Brilliant. Could you explain, because some, some listeners might not know, the idea of capitalist realism sure. and how Englishness functions in a similar way of like preventing new ideas from blossoming and, mm. and ways out of that, maybe? Is that- yeah. Capitalist realism is, is, is quite simple. So this is the title of Mark's book of 2009, which basically argues, and this, you know, Mark derived this from, uh, no one's quite sure if it was Slavoj Žižek or Frederick Jameson who, who first said this or maybe it's someone else yeah. <laughs> um, but you know this notion that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism uh, you know as I say this kind of crushing sense that capitalism is the, is the only game in town mm-hmm. you, know, you can't even criticise it in any way it's just mm-hmm. a kind of inalienable part of the landscape of the world mm. so how, I mean how does that relate to Englishness I haven't really thought about this but I think Englishness is actually a bit more up for grabs mm. It's not actually a kind of hegemonic mindset or kind of cultural structure of feeling mm-hmm. in the way that capitalist realism is. Mm-hmm. I think these notions of nation and identity are, are, a, are a bit more up for grabs than capitalism, which, which is not up for grabs at all. It's, you know, it's the way things <laughs> yeah. are. And, you know, anytime anyone, you know, tries to kind of criticize it or suggest different ways of doing things, that's, you know, completely shut down or, mm. you know. It's in- pretty tricky to question Englishness, though. Like, if a politician could be framed as hating the country, mm. that would be deeply problematic for them. Or as, as well, that's true. Being un-English yeah. is an easy way to make someone appear a villain. That's true. You, yeah, you hear even Corbyn talking continually about our country. Mm-hmm. So which country is it? <laughs> yeah. is it? Is it England or is it Britain? So, you know, so I mean, I think some form of nationalism, some form of patriotism yeah. is, as you say, very hegemonic and very uh, functions in a similar way to capitalist realism. But in our specific case, mm-hmm. it's ambiguous. Mm. It would be very interesting if even, even someone... So went up to Corbyn after you know after he said you know mm. I'm interested in doing the best for our country. It'd be interesting if someone just said, well, which country? Yeah. You know? uh, and so then whatever he said, say, but what is that? Yeah. <laughs> On second thoughts, yeah, maybe, maybe. Let's, let's keep it as a, a thought experiment. But um, so I, I agree that there is a, an immense pressure to be patriotic, mm. nationalistic, be proud of our country. But in in our case specifically, it's you know it's it's much less ambiguous in France, you know, for example, mm. or even the states. Mm. Their country is much more coherent. Mm. In our case, it's much more complicated. Yeah, which is how that there are people able to argue for a left patriotism and things yeah. like that, yeah. um, or yeah. argue that British values are our diversity and democracy, yeah, yeah, as, uh, yeah. as the government's own yeah, yeah. documents suggest. On the subject of patriotism, I was remembering back to when The Guardian leaked the Snowden files mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. in 2013, and Keith Vaz, Labour MP, who was on the, uh, the select committee that's Home Affairs, he brings in the editor of The Guardian and asks him point blank, do you love this country? Mm. I think the guy tried to say, like, we are patriotic. Like, leaking these things is the patriotic thing to do. That kind mm. of argument. Yeah, yeah. Fair, in the moment, good. Um, <laughs> but even people did react to that generally with, what the fuck is Keith Farr's doing? Like, what, what is this? This is weird. Like, I think Dan Hodges, of all people, who's a Telegraph writer, oh, yeah. called it um, McCarthyism. Yeah. So, well, I think well you, done, Dan. Yeah, go, go on, lad. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> rare thing that you'll hear on this podcast. So yeah, I think you're probably right. It is maybe more for grabs and less hegemonic than capitalism. They're both, they're both bad. Yeah, they're both bad. They're both things we, yeah. it would be best so. to yeah, move yeah. beyond. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So Alex, you outline three pillars of Englishness mm. uh, that I absolutely love because they're bleak as fuck. Historical curse, confinement, and a void. And in the book, you explore that in relation to Alton Towers. That was like my one of my favourite bits of the book. Can you explain that a bit? I mean, it's quite a strange book. I think, I think oh, it's, it's very, real weird. It is a weird but book. I highly recommend it. That <laughs> but, is part of why it's very good. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, you know, I was lucky enough that I was able to sort of find my way as I went along with the writing of the book and kind mm. of start in some quite strange places in terms of memoir and, and then kind of use that as a basis for this political social argument. So as well as this kind of memoir stuff about uh, my son and Mark Fisher, I then kind of go into this chapter on Alton Towers <laughs> and talk about a ride called the Hex and the fact that it is on the edge of this ruin, the, mm. the real Alton Towers, which is this 19th century Gothic building designed by Augustus Pugin, who also designed the House of the Parliament. So this sort of opportunistic mm. way of getting into this sense of the Englishness, I think is very bleak. Mm. Englishness, to the extent that it does exist, is a kind of absence of mm. national identity, partly for the kind of reasons that we talked about earlier in terms of England sacrificing its sense of self to the empire. Englishness is most often felt negatively, I think. Mm. Going to Walton Towers really brings this home. It's the kind of English Disneyland. So, you know, lots of kind of novelists and cultural theorists have kind of looked at, you know, Disneyland in terms of America and consumer capitalism and postmodernism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wanted to do that for England. So, you know, what is our consumer capitalist myth? Mm. The Hex rides. I, it's like one of the worst rides in there, right? Yes, it's, yeah, it's not. It's a kind of bit of a letdown, but it but it does the rides in combination with it, you know, being on the edge of this kind of abandoned building yeah. does bring home the three essential facets of Englishness, which I arbitrarily delineate. But you know, yeah. why not? Um, <laughs> yeah, historical curse: this sense that England has never really existed. Mm. You get this in King Arthur, the kind mm. of King Arthur myth. You know that England or Camelot or kind of some kind of ideal kingdom did exist in the past but then it's kind of gone into hiding you get it in various other kind of folk tales this sense of a kind of curse haunting us that we have to somehow break out of so that's the first thing second thing confinement this notion that we're kind of a crowded country which is true in certain contexts but actually not you know there's lots of open space there's lots of land that isn't built on and developed but it's owned by mm -hmm. Most, the vast majority of the land in England and, you know, Britain as a whole is owned by a very small number of people. Golf courses. Yeah, golf courses <laughs> in a modern context, obviously the aristocracy and kind of the landed gentry going back further with this, you know, and they enclosed the land and ensured that most of us didn't have access to most of the land. So that gives us a sense of being hemmed in, I think, of being literally enclosed, mm. which it's a kind of cultural mindset that expresses itself in all, all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. The last of the three essential English qualities is void, mm -hmm. which kind of touched on already, really, this sense that England is, you know, England doesn't really exist, mm -hmm. if you want to put it that way. It's, it's, that's a slight hyperbole. England kind of does exist, but not really. <laughs> you know, I, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what what is distinctively English as opposed to British, mm. you can count the things on the fingers of one hand. Mm. The England football team, <laughs> the England rugby team, uh, you know, certain kind of arts organisations, historic England. Greg's, well, that's that's a Northumbrian. <laughs> uh, 
that's a, that's a Geordie yeah, 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 yeah. Regionalism. Um, <laughs> so before we start talking about regionalism and maybe a solution of how we might imagine a different and better future away from Englishness, I'd just like to briefly ask you what you think. You know, like given his commitment to financialization at home and imperialism abroad, why do you think Blair committed to devolution you know we got like mm. devolution to scotland and wales and yeah. it stopped there didn't do it didn't no devolution england mm-hmm. um why do you think he did that yeah, i mean if you can even guess mm-hmm. um and to what extent do you think not doing some devolution in england as well mm. was a mistake sure well i guess it all comes down to what what i would call the early experimental phase of blairism which mm. did carry over a lot of the radical ideas of the left in the late later 20th century i yeah. mean albeit half-heartedly <laughs> nevertheless you know the scottish welsh devolution referendums were incredible developments mm. very radical developments i don't think there's any way a tory prime minister would have gone for it so i mm. think you know there were various ways in which particularly new labor in its very early years did carry over some of these radical new left ideas do you think failing to devolve england as well has caused problems mm. then? new labor did try to devolve the english regions mm. So they had a plan to devolve all of the regions and they were going to start with the Northeast, which was regarded as the kind of region that was most likely to go for regional devolution. Mm -hmm. And there was a referendum in 2004, which was heavily defeated. Mm. Dominic Cummings, interestingly, this was Dominic Cummings' first big project. He spearheaded the No campaign Mm -hmm. using a lot of the similar, you know, kind of similar popular cynicism, essentially, Mm. that you had with the Brexit mm-hmm, referendum, mm-hmm. and which is now part of the Tory strategy, you know, kind of popular cynicism. New Labour, by this point, kind of deep into its sort of reaction, you know, after yeah. having had this mildly progressive mm-hmm. opening phase where they kind of achieve things like Scottish and Welsh devolution. Minimum wage, etc. Minimum wage, yeah. yeah. By 2004, I mean, you know, this is after Iraq. New Labour's very much into its tuition fees and foundation hospitals and mm-hmm. Iraq phase and it turns around after the failure of the northeast devolution referendum in 2004 and says if the northeast not isn't going to go for it let's abandon the the plans it seems to me a bit silly that you would say that you know that kind of has put put things to bed once and for all mm. it was just one poll as i say it was you know kind of but alex the people have spoken <laughs> well indeed i mean i mean the ob- the, the obvious the obvious counterpoint is independence referendums in other countries, you know, there have been kind of Scottish referendum in Mm. 1979 that didn't go through. Nobody turned around and said, right, you know, Mm. that's it. Mm -hmm. Scots have decided once and for all. You you had kind of another referendum in 1997 and then Mm. another referendum in 2014. So this was only in one part of the country. So it seems to me a bit silly to consign this idea of regionalism to the dustbin of history just because it failed in one very specific context. So if not England then... What's the alternative? As I said, I think regionalism has to be the basis. Rather than thinking about nations, I think thinking about regions is a much better basis mm-hmm. for a kind of left egalitarian project. Mm-hmm. Whether that's an actual region or, or in the case of Scotland and Wales, essentially region-sized countries. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to diminish, you know, I can sort of hear the, the Scottish and Irish howls of, you think we're just a region? <laughs> uh, 
I, d- I don't think that, yeah. but I think the analogy between mm. a country mm. like Wales and the Northwest, for example, mm-hmm. over double the population, yep. or indeed somewhere like Cornwall and Devon, mm-hmm. I don't think there sh- it should ever be a Cornish nation mm-hmm. because, it, you know, again, it will always rely on these very dodgy notions of ethnicity yep. and et cetera, et cetera, and the Cornish language, which is a very meaningful thing, but it's... Problematic. Yeah. It's so, you know, so, you know, the, but a Cornish region, an empowered Cornish region, yeah. an empowered... Northwest and empowered Northeast mm. without any kind of ethnic basis seems to me the way to go. Mm-hmm. So how you go about doing that is a very big question mm-hmm. and I don't have all the answers and perhaps no one does. But some revival of this millennial mm-hmm. idea of regional devolution seems to me a very, very good starting point. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to stop regional devolution. I think, you know, one of the main spatial narrative about the islands mm. Britain, Great Britain, the British Isles as a whole, perhaps, is the kind of massive divide between London yeah. and its kind of surrounding area and everywhere else. It's the most regionally divided country in Europe economically. Exactly. Yeah. So, if, yeah, if you look at those statistics, mm. the kind of disparity between, you know, you have London as, I think, the wealthiest mm. or the, you know, on, on some measure is the kind of wealthiest region Mm. in Europe Mm. and then you have I mean there's dispute about how many about the figures Mm. but you have at least several of the other poorest 10 Mm. regions in in, I think it's Western Europe or Mm. Northwest Mm. Europe in the rest of the UK. That is the big divide mm-hmm. on the islands. It's not really the divide that occurs when you go from, you know, Berwick to <laughs> five miles or ten yeah. miles further north into Scotland. It's the divide between London and the southeast mm. and everywhere else. And not just an economic divide as well, a divide on almost everything. Culture, yeah. sucking up all the art and museums, the comedy industry, which I'm intimately yeah, aware of yeah. as a horror show. Yeah, and regionalism is a good solution to that. And I think it yeah. parallels a lot of the other stuff that the left's arguing for, increased workplace democracy, for example, yeah. um, and, and bringing power back to the people. It's along that exact same line mm-hmm. of, and people like democracy, right? If you ask someone, are, do you believe in democracy? Almost everyone is going to say yes. It should be an easy fight. Mm. I agree with you. I'm, I'm not 100% on the how. And because that's yeah. what I was going to ask you. I was like, yeah, how yeah. do we bring this about? How do we fight for regionalism? How do we build hegemony about yeah. that idea? And which you've kind of already answered with. You don't know, but you could take well, another I don't know. I, if you but, want. I mean, yeah. Um, there's interesting debates to be had about referendums. Yeah. Referenda, sorry, and how they function. Because mm. as we've seen in the case of both the Northeast Devolution Referendum yep. and Brexit... You have Dominic Cummings, mm. interestingly, in both cases, taking hold of the narrative, mm-hmm. hijacking the, this democratic mm-hmm. idea or this kind of sense of democratic feeling that mm-hmm. people have, mm-hmm. but redirecting it towards the right yeah. and towards this kind of sense of cynicism and this sense of you know lashing out at the wrong targets, essentially, yeah. instead yeah, of yeah. lashing out at the city of London and the yeah. people that are kind of really disempowering you. In both cases, in both, you know, the Northeast West referendum and, and Brexit, mm-hmm. the right is able to, because it controls the media, it controls, yep, 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 yep. you know, it's the establishment, you know, has this kind of overwhelming force of argument. It's able to redirect that sense of disempowerment and desire for more democracy towards cynicism, racism, xenophobia, etc., etc. I suspect if there were referenda about regional devolution tomorrow, mm-hmm. they would overwhelmingly collapse (laughs) Um, they would be defeated Mm -hmm. so I don't know I mean I I think I don't really 
have a problem with some form of top-down, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a reformist government coming in and saying, look, we're going to devolve power to the regions. There are problems with that in terms of it not having this kind of democratic mandate. At the same time, you know, governments come in and do do all sorts of things, do all yep. sorts of, you know, reform society in all sorts of major ways. I don't see why you couldn't just have a kind of radical Labour government coming in and essentially starting the ball mm. rolling, at least, towards devolving power to different parts of the country. So, you know, I'm leaning towards partly, as I say, out of this Mm. sort of cynicism about referenda and how Mm -hmm. they tend to pan out in a capitalist conservative society. I just think, well, get a reformist government in, rip up the map of of Britain. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Alex's book, New Model Island, is published by Repeater Books and is legitimately great. If you enjoy Mandatory Redistribution Party, subscribe, follow us on Twitter at Mando Party, maybe give us a review. Oh, thank you. See ya. <laughs>